So in this video, we will be reacting to the podcast slash interview that Tim Pool did with Lucas Bodkin of T-Rex Arms over on the TimCast IRL channel. As I mentioned in the intro, in this video, we will be discussing the interview that Tim Pool did with Lucas Bodkin of T-Rex Arms. I thought this was an amazing interview. Um, in no way is this video intended to be like attacking them or anything like that. This is definitely not an attack video or anything. Um, I'm just going to react to some of the uh, talking points that they discussed during the interview add some points of clarity on some topics that they are discussing because I know everybody doesn't follow two-way litigation like we do here on the channel. Um, not everybody's a two-way attorney. So I thought it would be interesting to react to this interview, go over some of the things that they're talking about, and also to add some further context. So I'm going to play some various clips and then I'm going to respond to them. So here's one of the first clips that I'm going to be reacting to. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but if, if, if someone at a gun store has suspicions that a person may use a weapon for criminal ends, they can deny sale. But but isn't it a requirement to deny sale? Um, probably it, pro it technically probably is. It or, probably or is like, hey, don't sell them that gun. You don't want to be the guy. You know, like if a cop comes to you and says, did you did you think this guy was going to yeah, sell and the something? And then be like, yeah, I totally yeah. thought he was going to go shoot up the mall and I sold it anyway. Yeah, he right. said something. I did. Yeah. I wanted the money. Yeah, <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure they get in yeah. trouble. If they're like the guy came in and he was talking about committing a crime and yeah. I said, well, here's your weapon. Like, nah, yeah, you can't sweating everywhere. Yeah. You're like effectively an accessory to the crime. Yeah. So in this section, they're talking about what legal authority does a gun store have to deny sales. They are assuming that there is some sort of uh, legal authority to deny sales to someone who maybe you suspect is going to engage in criminal conduct. And eventually they come to the um, decision that yes, there has to be some sort of federal law. And they are correct. There is a federal law. There is 18 USC 922D, which essentially makes it a violation for a dealer to sell firearms or ammunition to anyone who is a prohibited person and also anyone that they have reasonable cause uh, to believe that that person may be engaging in maybe a straw purchase or intends to dispose of a firearm in furtherance of a felony. Also, federal law gives gun stores broad discretion to deny sales, especially when they suspect that maybe a purchaser is buying that firearm for criminal conduct or maybe for a straw purchase. A straw purchase is usually one of the main categories that uh, sales will be denied for. Now, also, gun stores can deny just essentially selling even if the person passes a background check. There, again, is broad discretion to deny sales. There's been some issues that popped up as far as discriminatory efforts of some gun stores, but that is because gun stores are given broad discretion. There's also the issue with the PLCAA, which is the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act. The Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act is a federal law that you hear Joe Biden talk about quite a bit. And he says that it provides blanket immunity for gun stores and gun dealers and gun manufacturers, which simply is not true. The PLCAA does not insulate gun dealers and gun stores when maybe they engage in something like negligence. And negligence is one of those categories that maybe a gun store could fall into, especially if they sell a firearm to someone that they knew they should not have sold to or maybe had some sort of um, spidey sense that maybe that person was going to engage in criminal conduct, or maybe even if that person kind of mentions that while they're trying to purchase the firearm. The PLCAA will not protect the gun store from negligence suits, civil suits, and we've seen that pop up even more recently with recent incidents, with shootings. We've seen recently there's been lawsuits against large manufacturers like Daniel Defense, and then also individual gun stores who maybe sold those firearms to an individual. So, they are correct that there is some sort of discretion that's given to gun stores to deny sales, and that's just some of the legal basis for those things. 
Then in the next section, they go on to talk about some more timely topics, and that is the ATF's current overreach with pistol braces, bump stocks, and other items which the ATF is trying to regulate. It's way more lethal. Well, so, the, so let me the average person. What's going on with this um, this uh, pistol brace ban they just did? I saw there was a video of members of Congress questioning the ATF, yeah. and the ATF couldn't answer basic questions about. They about, didn't want. Which, is, which is, is typical. That is yeah. a, a normal thing to see when you're in when you see Congress people interrogating people that are in are in the regulatory body, the ATF that is charged assault. with regu regulating firearms. And they know nothing. Yeah. There, there wasn't. It some, was someone week. asked him. He's like, "You don't know the difference between five, five, six, and three hundred blackout." Probably. And this is like the ATF director. Yeah, or the director yeah. of ATF did this thing, and they were like, "Define in fifteen seconds for me an assault weapon." And he was like, "Well, I'm not a gun <laughs> expert, so I can't." So there, that's actually an interesting discussion. If you've uh, been staying up to date, what's going on with the pistol brace rule? There was recently a hearing before a committee, and the ATF director Dettelbach came before a committee and had to answer some questions about the ATF's current overreach and then also specifically the pistol brace rule. Now here they're talking about how the ATF director couldn't actually define what a so-called assault weapon is. And actually I think what this was, because I watched the hearings and understanding just kind of the legal intricacies of all these things that is happening, the ATF director, it wasn't that he couldn't say what an assault weapon is or a so-called assault weapon is. Instead, what he was saying during the hearing is that there is no uniform definition of a so-called assault weapon that the gun control side has adopted. Instead, he kept saying, well, there are multiple definitions, and that is actually very true. For example, California's definition of so-called assault weapons that they ban under their own definitions is not the same that we saw pass recently in Washington with their new law and their new ban on so-called assault weapons. It's also not the same type of definition in New York in other states that are implementing these bans on these types of items. For example, California has multiple facets. They have the Roberti Roos list that has a list of makes and models that they specifically ban as so-called assault weapons. For example, they will name things like Colt AR-15s. And then they also have another subsection of a ban on so-called assault weapons, which is their characteristic ban under California Penal Code 30515. And that has a characteristic definitions where if you have something like a semi-automatic centerfire rifle with specific features attached, like a pistol brace, a collapsible stock, a flash hider, a vertical forward grip, anything like that, it magically makes it into a so-called assault weapon. There's been other definitions that have been adopted in different states. Again, Washington and the mo most recent one that they passed is even broader than California's. It even bans things like fin grips and even parts and conversion kits and names them expressly as so-called assault weapons. So Washington's ban even defines parts as so-called assault weapons. So it's a much broader definition, and that's why the ATF director was skirting that question because there is no uniform definition, especially under federal law, of what a so-called assault weapon is. On what the feds can actually but do. But here, here's, here's the most important question. The ATF has just imposed a rule mm -hmm. yep, without without congress mm -hmm. making it illegal to own an item attached mm -hmm. to to a weapon mm -hmm. that will make what hundreds of thousands of people Mi millions millions, millions and millions and millions i can't remember what the number was it was like three, three we uh I many, many i we so here they're talking about what impact the pistol brace rule has how many people is it impacting um tim pool is saying well maybe it's a few hundred thousand lucas says well maybe it's four million and then phil says well it's actually millions and millions and Phil is actually more correct. The ATF's own admissions in the final rule indicate that on the lowest end, 
it's going to impact maybe 40 million people. But industry estimates is that the final rule will impact at least 100 million braced pistols that are currently in the possession, the lawful possession of gun owners. So there is huge impact of this final rule. It's just not a few hundred thousand. This is millions and millions of firearms and millions and millions of gun owners. They have them, because uh, I, I think I have a handful of pistols with braces. They were all removed and separated mm. and stored somewhere far away. I just got bomb socks and everything, man. No. <laughs> <laughs> but so, but, but with that, are you still allowed to have them so long as they're not attached? Uh, no, the whole bomb stuff things. Okay. So this is, the oh, they problem. lost that. They lost they, it. Right. But no one knows like it's in limbo right. and like, will the company start selling them again? No, probably not. Cause they're like, well, they'll just ban it. But the a, next administration. A, a court struck that down. That is correct. And the, the brace thing, it's going to be the exact same thing. They're going to fight it for two years. Yep. The issue is for resellers like Gunbroker, for example, the day that went out or the next day that went out, they pulled all listings of guns with braces off of their website. Let's so, let, so there's two important things that they discuss right there that I want to break down. Um, really, the first one is talking about separating the uh, brace from the firearm, and maybe that will make you in compliance with the ATF's current final rule. Now, the reality is the ATF's final rule on pistol braces doesn't even say that is true. There are some concerns that the ATF may still go after people because of constructive possession of a brace and then also a pistol that you could then attach a brace to. Some people are saying you need to completely potentially modify the brace so it couldn't be equipped to that specific firearm. Maybe you need to get rid of it completely, uh, destroy it, uh, the brace itself so it can't be attached. Uh, recently at that very hearing, the ATF director Dettelbach was asked about this fact about separating the brace from the pistol. Where can you put it? Can you just simply separate it and will the ATF not go after you? He said during the hearing that, yes, that's true. You can separate the brace from the pistol. But if you look at the language in the final rule, that's not as clear. And we've seen the ATF plenty of times go back on multiple statements that they've made and still prosecute people for issues potentially like this of being in possession. And that's kind of the whole issue with the pistol brace rule. Again, the ATF said that for over a decade, you could lawfully possess these types of firearms. And then they went back on their word. So I don't even trust Dettelbach and his admissions during a hearing and statements by the ATF that yes, you can just simply separate them. Still, I have concerns about that because it's still the ATF. Then in the next section, they talk about a different issue which is bump stocks and the ATF's regulation of bump stocks. If you're not familiar, uh, President Trump directed the ATF to go after bump stocks and treat that device itself as actually a machine gun under the NFA and the GCA. Because of that, the ATF implemented their new rule and completely banned the possession of those items because they said if you were in possession of them, you were in possession of an unlawful machine gun and you would be potentially subject to 10 years in prison and or a fine of $250,000. Now here in this section, this is the only section I kind of have an issue with. And this, this is because it's just simply they don't understand or they don't know about the intricacies of all the legal cases, which I don't expect them to. I don't expect Tim Pool to know about all the two-way litigation. They know a little bit about it. And I don't ex even expect Lucas to know all about the intricacies of the two-way litigation that's going on right now in regards to uh, bump stocks. There are two specific cases that they're referencing. There is the Cargill case, which is in the Fifth Circuit. And then there is the Hardin case, which is out of the Sixth Circuit. Cargill is the one that most people know about because Cargill went before the Fifth Circuit en banc panel. 
and the Fifth Circuit en banc panel struck down the ATF's bump stock rule. Then recently, just about a week ago, you had the Sixth Circuit in the Hardin case also strike down the ATF's bump stock rule. Now, they talk about, well, bump stocks are legal now. That's not true. What ended up happening, specifically after the Cargill case in the Fifth Circuit, the Fifth Circuit en banc panel remanded the case back down to the district court, which is the lower court, and essentially said, make a decision, decide on relief based on the decision that we issued. What ended up happening, though, is that the ATF appealed the Fifth Circuit's en banc panel's decision up to the Supreme Court. And currently, all litigation in the Fifth Circuit on the Cargill case is on hold until we see what the Supreme Court does. So there has not been any final relief that's been issued by the Fifth Circuit in either the en banc panel level or the district court level. The district court is really the one that has to issue the relief, but all of that litigation is currently on hold to see what the uh, Supreme Court does. So the Cargill case is up at the Supreme Court level. All other litigation is on hold right now. The Hardin case before the Sixth Circuit, that was a three-judge panel. Yes, they struck it down. They haven't actually issued any relief, and the likelihood is that that is also going to go before an en banc panel in the Sixth Circuit and then eventually make its way up to the Supreme Court as well. But right now, the ban on bump stocks is still in place. And even if, let's say, there was some sort of relief issued by the Fifth Circuit or the Sixth Circuit or the district courts, that relief would be limited to only the states within that circuit. It wouldn't apply nationally because that's not how that had worked in those cases. So it would still be limited only to those states. So the point of clarification, bump stocks, no, they're not legal right now. That's why you're not seeing them being sold. And right now, all litigation is kind of looking at the Supreme Court and seeing what they will do in the Cargill case. They already lost. Who? The, the gun control people. Oh, yeah. Not only are we looking at 27 constitutional carry states, it's, uh, mm -hmm. I think Nebraska and Florida are next to go into effect, yep. but 3D printed guns exist. It's done. There's yeah, nothing not they happening. can do about it. So this is the next part that I want to talk about, and, and this is very true. We've seen a huge movement towards constitutional carry, the recognition of an individual's right to carry a firearm concealed without the permission of the government, without getting a permit to carry. So yes, there are now going to be 27 states that are some form of permitless carry or constitutional carry. So that is a great movement. I think we are definitely heading in the right direction. I think the trend for litigation, the trend for litigation and the trend as far as constitutional carry is heading in the right direction. Now, uh, you also heard Tim Pool talk about 3D printing. I would say the 3D printing issue is just not as clear. It's not as clear cut as, well, we can all just 3D print. We've seen at the federal level and also at the state level, there are many, many calls to regulate 3D printing. Now, I know some people say, well, there's no way you could regulate 3D printing. Uh, you can't stop the code. You can't stop the source, all that stuff. I get that. But what some states are doing, like the state of California with proposed legislation, is they want to essentially ban the individual possession of 3D printers. They want to completely just ban individuals from possessing 3D printers because you could potentially manufacture your own firearms. So there are calls at state levels to ban 3D printers and to also criminalize anyone in possession of maybe any source code or anything like that. So there are calls on the gun control side to do that. There is movement on that. There were also calls at the national level, originally in the frames and receivers rule that the ATF put into effect. There were calls for regulations on 3D printing. 
Eventually, the ATF dropped that, which I was glad they dropped that. But I think it's only a matter of time before we see some sort of national restriction on 3D printed firearms, treating them as unfinished frames and receivers like they did with Polymer 80s. And then also, I would say in regards to us winning the fight, again, I agree we are winning the fight. It's trending in the right direction. But we are also seeing a huge polarization between states that maybe have always been pro-gun, like Texas, like Florida, like Alabama, all these other states, which we always knew they were pro-2A, pro-firearms. They're passing things like constitutional carry. That's awesome. But then we are seeing on the other side, more of these in-between states moving not towards the pro-gun side, but more radically towards the anti-gun side. We are seeing Washington, which passed a magazine ban and just recently passed a ban on so-called assault weapons. We've seen Colorado try to do the same. Illinois did the same. And then Oregon also did the same thing. They passed a ban on magazines and then also passed a ban on on, on needing to get a permit to purchase a firearm. So we are seeing the uh, potentially semi-blue states move even more radically to blue states and then passing even more aggressive gun control. And I think that's how it's going to be. We are going to see a huge polarization between huge, amazing pro-gun states pushing for constitutional carry. I think we're going to see more of that. But then we are going to see those outlier states get even more radical in pushing for their gun control and just trying to outright ban the possession of all firearms. It wasn't until I think well, like 2008 with, uh, was it Heller in D.C.? That, that mm-hmm. people were actually able to have guns legally nationwide. Good. We had in the 80s, most states would not give you a gun permit. Right. You couldn't have guns. Mm-hmm. And then we, you watch around the year 2000, constitutional carry starts popping up state by state. Mm-hmm. And now it's 27 states. Mm-hmm. Yep. So Nebraska, so it's 25 in effect. Florida just did permitless concealed carry. Nebraska, I think, went full constitutional. Am so I wrong? Yeah, just today, I think it was. And, and, oh. and more coming. It ain't over here. More and more states are going to implement. I think. Uh, the, the, yeah, yeah. So here they're talking about the implications of Heller 2008, which was a Supreme Court decision. And really, that's one of the first landmark decisions we have on the Second Amendment. One of the interesting things about Second Amendment uh, law, litigation, whatever you want to call it, is that this area of constitutional law is just not fully flushed out yet. It's not like the First Amendment. It's not like the Fourth Amendment. It's not anything like that. We only have a handful of Second Amendment cases that the Supreme Court has heard and ruled on, Heller being one of the first landmark ones. And one of the important things that they're mentioning there that Heller did is it affirmed the individual right to keep and bear arms, that you as an individual, regardless of your service in the militia, it's not tied to service in militia. It is an individual right to keep and bear arms. That was one of the major things that the Heller decision did. Um One of the other things that then happened after that with the recent Bruin decision is that the Bruin court and Justice Thomas had to also say, yes, it's an individual right. And that individual right extends beyond your home because Heller was more focused on the possession of handguns within your home, which D.C. was regulating. The court in Bruin had to go in and say, obviously, you have a right to keep and bear arms in your home and also in public. And that was one of the huge issues with the Bruin case was the state of New York restricting an individual's ability to conceal carry out in public. You had some lower courts that were trying to say that Heller only limited uh, the right to within your home, to self-defense within the home. It didn't extend beyond your home. All of a sudden, your right magically disappeared once you stepped outside the curtilage of your home. So you had a lot of lower courts that tried to narrow the Heller decision. 
tried to apply things like the two-step approach, tried to use public interest arguments, but you had Bruin go in and say, no, the correct analysis is text as informed by relevant history and tradition, and also that the individual right, once again, is an individual right, and that it extends beyond your home. The big, the big frontier is going to be, and the, the issue right now is the federal government still controls who gets to sell guns. Mm-hmm. That is the whole FFL, the whole thing, the Gun Control Act or whatever it was. That is the actual, like the final frontier of getting rights back is when can states just get to do it on their own? You yeah. have their own system for choosing guns. So here they're also talking about attacks on FFLs, that kind of being the major uh, battle that we are now going to face. And I agree with that. I think what's going to happen is FFLs and the restrictions on FFLs is going to become even more important. We've seen the ATF be more aggressive in trying to shut down various stores, gun dealers, manufacturers. They've also put in place a zero tolerance policies where even if a dealer has some sort of just clerical error, puts a name wrong, does something just minor wrong, there is zero, zero tolerance and they will shut down that store. And that's been the position now of the ATF. Now, Lucas also talks about uh, states' rights, essentially, and states choosing how they want to implement the Second Amendment. And that has actually been a huge movement recently. Um, for example, reference Texas in passing a law, which was their suppressor freedom law, which put in place a made in Texas suppressor law, essentially where if a suppressor was made and sold exclusively within the state of Texas and wasn't going to go out of these state boundaries, then the ATF could not regulate those items under the NFA. That was the position taken by Texas. Of course, the ATF didn't like that. And there's currently litigation going on against the ATF to try to enforce this Texas law, which is going to remove the ability of the ATF to regulate these suppressors that are made in Texas. So there is a huge push right now for states to implement their own 2A laws and to push back against federal regulation. And I think that's going to become even more important, like we're seeing with states passing constitutional carry. I think we're going to see even more states trying to pass pro 2A laws that go directly against some of these federal regulations. Now, one of the last things I want to point to is earlier in the discussion, they talk about an individual's right, uh, that individuals should not be stripped of their fundamental human right to keep and bear arms if they are a felon. And I've done plenty of videos on this. I've covered plenty of cases talking about this very topic. Um, I agree with that. I think if someone's a nonviolent felon and they serve their time, they are released out into public, we assume that they can be of service to the public, that they are good to go to be released from a prison. I don't think that they should be continued to be stripped of their right to keep and bear arms. Now, there's a lot of question about the historical context, the historical support for that. Uh, should individuals with just blanket felonies be prohibited from keeping and bearing arms, or is it only restricted to nonviolent felons? There is some sort of historical support for maybe continuing to restrict the rights of violent felons from being able to keep and bear arms if they're released. There are some historical contexts, and right now there is litigation going on, for example, in the Third Circuit, I believe, with the Range v. Garland case. We've talked about that. We're waiting for a decision from the Third Circuit in regards to nonviolent felons and their ability to keep and bear arms going forward. But right now, under federal law, 
if you have a felony, there's just a blanket prohibition on your ability to keep and bear arms. So like I said, this was a really interesting conversation between Tim Poole on his podcast and in the interview with Lucas Botkin from TRX Arms. I'm a huge fan of Lucas. Um, I have plenty of his products behind me. You can see like the AC1 and I run his holsters. Um, I've had some small communications with Lucas here and there. I met him recently at SHOT Show, met him and his team and then also his brother. And we had a brief conversation just kind of about the Second Amendment and stuff like that. And I also sent him a message after this interview came out and just said, hey, you know, it was a great conversation. I appreciate what you are doing for the uh, culture right now as far as the two-way community for the gun community. I think it's important to have these sort of discussions. This in no way is uh, criticizing this conversation at all. I actually really appreciate this conversation. Just wanted to add some further context to some of these legal topics that were discussed, clear up some maybe of the confusion on some of these topics, and really just bring your guys' attention to this. If you're interested in seeing this whole interview, they talked about a lot more things than what I've covered here on this video. I will link it down below. I enjoy Tim Pool and his podcast very much. I mean, a lot of people say like, oh, you should go on Tim Pool's podcast. Um, I definitely am not big enough yet to do that. And it's kind of one of those things you just don't go on. You have to be invited to do, but maybe one day I would love to go on Tim Pool talk further about the second amendment, talk about firearms and all that. But regardless, go listen to this podcast. I will, again, we'll link it down below on YouTube so you guys can listen to this. And again, thank you to Tim Poole and then to also Lucas and Phil and all the team over at the Timcast IRL for having this, this really important discussion on the second amendment on firearms and our right to keep and bear arms. So if you guys have any questions, go ahead and comment down below and I will try to answer the best of my ability. Also, if you like this video and you like to support the channel, one of the best ways to do that is to like, comment, and subscribe. All those things help to fuel the algorithm, and it signals to YouTube that you guys see value in these videos and in this type of two-way news. As always, I want to thank everybody who likes, comments, subscribes, who hits the notification bell, who shares these videos. You guys are directly impacting these videos, impacting this channel, and helping me to reach and educate more people than I could ever do on my own. So as always, thank you all for watching. Don't forget to like and subscribe. And never forget this nation was built by farm scholars and this nation will be maintained by farm scholars.